a whiffed down from the skies in sheets, the cold seeped into your bones in a way that made you wish for the cover of your blankets back home. Flashes of lightning illuminate a castle in the night, not far from your stopped car. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Fan Fiction Tapes. I'm your host today, Maya, pronouns she, her, and today I'm joined by... My co-host, pronouns Dylan. <laughs> your guest, Barry... And I'm our producer, Ian. Pronounce he, him. If you hadn't guessed it from the little monologue I gave just before our traditional intro, the episode, or if you hadn't, you know, read the title like a normal human being, today's episode is about gothic fiction with an emphasis on gothic horror. And that type of environment, the, uh, the wet, the cold, and the storm accompanied with Gothic architecture, yes, that's a thing, it's not just a skyscraper put up in Hot Topic and black lipstick. It's a pretty common theme, especially if you have played or even heard of D&D. That might be what comes to mind, is this vampire lord lording over a small Eastern European town, or well, Eastern European based. I should say. It's not a lot of D&D actually happens as with set in Eastern Europe. I'm getting off track, though. First up, what is gothic fiction? Well, I talked about it a little bit. It's got this setting of being in this certain stuff. There's a lot of kind of specific weather patterns. It's also this really old literary genre. It's indirectly led to a lot of <coughs> modern tropes and genres which is part of why we wanted to talk about it today yeah the uh way i would describe it is it's very it's dark and stormy nights old architecture romanticism tragedy and horror all sort of conjoined it's what you think of when you think of, you know, a vampire on top of his spire with a wine glass looking down in the night sky. It's a werewolf searching for a cure for his condition and failing. Gothic horror is tragedy, but spooky. In simple terms. Yeah, and... Part of the reason for that image of gothic fiction as the vampire is, well, Dracula's the most well-known gothic vampire work. Uh, and then also, part of the reason for that image is Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. The famous and also infamous module Curse of Strahd, which is very old D&D, and is usually considered to be a pretty classic D&D uh, module. Uh, as I believe we've actually mentioned on the podcast before, it's also incredibly racist. Last episode, <laughs> actually, I think. That is... One of the many problems with this genre is there's a... bit of habit of some racism. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Entirely surprising for a genre that grew out of... 17th and 18th century British culture. <coughs> Colonials. <coughs> Says the American. Yeah. You, yeah. yeah. 
hey, why don't you go out to the Middle East again so you have that issue? <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't get started here. <laughs> sure, I'll go to the Middle East, you'll go to India, and we'll sort the stuff ourselves. I'm Welsh. I, I am a colony. Oh, the yeah. old, the first. Don't fool me. Anyway, about gothic horror. Gothic horror uh, to me is like mostly cringe. Uh but <laughs> you're cringe. It's it's, it's it's a it's a lot of like making things that you know. It's just not my things. I'm like more surreal human. You know. You know, capitalism is way more scary than a vampire. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. That's the whole metaphor! Yeah, but I don't care about metaphors. Metaphors are for cowards. <laughs> Do you ever notice how most vampires are rich? They're part of the bourgeoisie. Yeah, yeah, but vampires also just like, kind of like, uh. <laughs> I think vampires are hot. <laughs> Jump on the gun, Barry, over to get to Carmilla until later. Um, okay, fine. <laughs> I have actually mostly experienced gothic romance as romance literature and literature connected to the romantic period uh, was a big focus for one of my English classes in high school. Uh, and so we read Frankenstein and we read Wuthering Heights as kind of the big ones that stuck out to me still. Although, I gotta be honest, I didn't like uh, Frankenstein. I thought Frankenstein was a bitch and the show was Mary Shelley. Boo. Boo this woman. I, <laughs> that is a spicy take there. It, it is. Um, Shun the non-believer. Shun. 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 I mean, I have zero opinion on it. I'm just like, mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we okay. know it, it it's a thing. We know. And no I mean, keep in mind I was like sixteen when I read this, which was a while ago. I don't want to reflect on how long ago that was. Okay, we are getting a little bit off track. I mentioned a little bit of this and Ian, you, you mentioned this specifically in the script. Is you called gothic fiction the grandfather of modern genre fiction. Would you kind of elaborate on that? Yeah. There's a lot of the tropes and cliches that define various modern genres can, can trace back to gothic fiction. For instance, you mentioned, you know, uh, Wuthering Heights and Frankenstein. I'm, I'm pretty sure that... Okay, I'm not going to mention anything about the romance genre here because I am absolutely the least qualified person in, in this chat to talk about that. But Frankenstein certainly establishes a lot of tropes um, for science fiction. The story is about a mad scientist who harnesses what was then cutting-edge knowledge to create life. And play God. We haven't mentioned him yet, but one of the other uh, great authors of the the gothic genre is Edgar Allan Poe. And he's 
often credited with basically inventing detective fiction with uh, his short story Murders in the Rue Morgue that served as a template for uh, later detective fiction like Sherlock Holmes and uh, Hercule Poirot. There's a lot of fantasy tropes that draw from works like Dracula. And yeah, if you pick any of your favorite genre, you know, sci-fi, fantasy, romance, thriller, etc., 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 and you you pick you, you look back on the history of the tropes, eventually you'll find them cropping up in or becoming widespread through uh, gothic fiction writing or possibly Shakespeare because uh, that was itself an influence on, on gothic fiction. But that, yes, that may that be was... a rabbit hole for another time. <laughs> uh, th- that is in fact a rabbit hole for another time later this season, this season we talk about classical tragedy and tragic heroes. Oh, uh, that's true. We are, we are doing that. You can't talk about that and not mention Shakespeare. He does have a lot of tragic heroes. A lot of tragic in general. (laughs) They're tragic people. Yeah, anyway. So yeah, gothic fiction. So Dracula's been mentioned a a couple of times already, and Dracula is often credited as being the origin of kind of the presence of the vampire in popular culture. But that's not actually... Dracula isn't actually the origin of vampire fiction. It certainly was the first big popular one. But it was not actually the first one. It was... Vampire fiction was actually pretty well established for quite a while, over a hundred years before Dracula came out. Uh, And it started in the 18th century, at least to, like, take off... The retellings of it started taking off. One of the other big, like, books about it that did well even earlier than Dracula, and one that I wanted to mention uh, for reasons that will become obvious soon, is Carmilla, which predates Dracula by about 26 years, and the reason I wanted to mention it uh, is it's the origin of the lesbian vampire trope. That's right. 1872. We're getting lesbians in fiction. Lesbians have been winning for over 200 years. That's pretty gay. Actually, it's not been 200 years yet, but whatever. Semantics. Yeah, that's pretty gay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, something that I always thought kind of neat in terms of more modern vampire fiction is that Castlevania, namely the show, I haven't actually played the video game, Oh my god, Castlevania's uh, the, amazing. The show on Netflix actually mentions by name several of these older vampires. You have Carmilla, you have Lenore, you have Dracula himself. I, I thought it was neat that they went beyond just Dracula when doing 
either the show or even in the game itself. Again, I've, I've not oh, played. I'm not familiar oh, with it. Oh, they were in the games. Phenomenal. Of course, in one appearance, Carmilla was just a face. Not even like a woman, just like a the face. So, their knowledge may vary in how they're depicted, but they're, they were there. And now for the part of the episode that everyone, all of you, and definitely all of us here uh, <laughs> on the recording side of things have been waiting to get to, how gothic horror interacts with tabletop role-playing games. Oh, I mentioned boy. that Curse of Strahd is kind of one of the classic images of D&D. The cover of the book, which I, I actually have the book because I've wanted to run something in its setting, but um, without so many of the problems, features on it a... what looks to be a vampire lord spitting what appears to be wine in a glass. And behind him, there is a castle in the rain. It is a very classic image. Evil vampire lord... And his rainy castle. Mm-hmm. And it's... That's pretty common in D&D. Now, the Curse of Strahd, and it, I'm certain the other versions of this is true as well, but the 5th edition version of the Curse of Strahd, that book has some major racism problems. Uh, in particular, the treatment of the Roma people in that book by Wizards of the Coast is unacceptable. Yeah, And to address this, Wizards uh, released a later book, uh, Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. And to their credit, it's less racist to the Roma people. That's good. But it, um, it still has a couple of issues that I'm not entirely satisfied with. That's bad. Fantastic meta-commentary. <laughs> I it, it, I think it still has some issues of exoticism of taking these elements of other cultures and um, portraying them as if they were elements of a fantastical culture. I mean, to be fair, when we do take things from like cultures per se, it's because our human minds can't perceive anything outside of like established. So it, it's like when we go to a new planet on Star Wars and it's like, oh, they dress like in this quasi-Japanese way. It's like, well, yeah, because our human minds can't perceive what an alien culture or like what alien outside of being a humanoid or like within the realm of what we've already made. And that is my point. <laughs> it's yeah. It's a point. Uh, the issue is, I think, treating particular elements of cultures with respect, and that is elements of their of belief systems from those cultures, elements of their mythologies that Wizards of the Coast has, a, uh, obviously, given that I'm mentioning this, a, a bad history with that. They don't have a great track record. And that's, that's I mean... It's not perfect. one of those things with some parts of vampire mythologies it, or vampire literatures. It's not always been the most culturally sensitive. 
to uh, say the least. Yeah. No, I, I can't disagree with any of that. It. I feel like it's difficult, especially for older stories in general, to portray people correctly. And to do so in the modern age is... It needs to be criticized. That's it. That's my <laughs> Racism bad. Call it out. Yeah. In particular, one of the elements of... That's just kind of fucked about Curse of Strahd is... The... What they call the Vistani people. Which are... As I mentioned pretty explicit XPs of the Roma people. And they are portrayed explicitly as scavengers, as thieves, and as charlatans. Which, given the way that they have been considered and treated by most of Europe for the last thousands of years... I'm feeding into the stereotype there, right? <laughs> yeah... The Roma people deserve better, honestly. I mean, really, no one deserves that? Oh, yeah, no one deserves it, but they are getting it anyway, and they don't, they shouldn't be. But yeah, to sort of piggyback off the original thing here, Gothic Horror has a huge place in tabletop gaming. It's Ravenloft and Dungeons and Dragons. It's the old world of darkness, like Vampire the Masquerade, and I guess the new world of darkness, but I don't know that people like that. I'm I'm used to Vampire the Masquerade, not the new one. And it's games with sort of a mix of gothic and cosmic horror, like any adventure you run in the 1920s in Call of Cthulhu, which I guess, I guess that would be considered gothic in a way. It's very dark and mysterious. I think I think cosmic horror does actually draw a lot from gothic horror. You could yeah. consider it the uh, the successor genre. Yeah. So yeah, they're absolutely. pretty related. Now, is all cosmic horror related to gothic horror? No, I don't think. If you watch Event Horizon, there is no gothic horror in that. Mm. It's a good movie, but there's no gothic horror in it. But with Call of Cthulhu especially, there's very gothic leanings towards it. At least in some setting information and such. I think I'll come back to this next week when we are talking about cosmic horror. Yeah. Yeah. And it also means I can ramble about Event Horizon. As someone who runs a lot of D&D stuff, participates. I participate in more. Yeah. Well, I mean, sure. But <laughs> my point, this is not a finger measuring contest. I'll have you know. Um, <laughs> I my have fingers not... are longer than yours. I'll have you know that. You you can't <laughs> prove that. <laughs> One of my fingers is longer than yours. This is all conjecture. <laughs> like it's stricken from the record. Um, 
But no, I'm absolutely m- leaving this in. <laughs> my uh, uh, my statement is I have never used gothic horror in any sort of way. <laughs> I know it's just like uh, not 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 my style. I'm uh, more of the horrors of the world and that we humans are scarier than you know most other things <laughs> and that's I mean, valid like oh dylan what did you make your vampire well i made her like you know a hag's plaything who is more of a threat to a group of characters than anything else but at the end of the day she's just like a 15 year old immortal who's very nice and just scared about being left alone <laughs> the horrors of the flesh are, har- are scarier than the horrors of the mind counterpoint if I had to choose between capitalism and a hot vampire do you know what I would pick I mean yeah but we don't we don't choose capitalism we are given capitalism it is forced apart us and that's why it is scary a vampire comes near you you know how to defeat a vampire to defeat capitalism is a lot harder defeat uh, I, a vampire okay i definitely shouldn't say that on air never mind L- let's just say i don't like when i go in and you know when we t- mostly talk about um uh gothic horror indian deer we're talking about vampires for the most part. Werewolves don't really get brought up that much because we're quite progressive people and recognize what lycanthropy is, really, as yeah. a disease. And that when we encounter a werewolf, it's mostly, oh no, we have to help this person most of the time. Or, you know, well, help them in any sort of way, whether it's curing them or helping them live with it, with their lycanthropy. You know, Which, so the gothic gothic heart does not come into it. Uh, I, I I threw a werewolf at actually one of my parties once, and uh, they just kind of moved along. They uh they got chewed on by the werewolf and moved on with their lives. Well, your your party is a bunch of uh, horrible and considerate people. Maybe that's the point. They maybe 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 they thought, well, we could help them, but it's more financially viable if we continue on, and that's why capitalism is a real bad guy in that situation, you know? I, to be <laughs> fair, they, they, they do have bigger issues at the time. No, the, the biggest issue is that they didn't care. Uh, but <laughs> The biggest issue is the bourgeoisie. But another thing for me is I don't care much for the sort of aesthetic of goth gothic it's not for everyone yeah uh what i are more particular to which you may find surprising small town america that's way creepier because (laughs) it is it is i live in a small town it's pretty creepy 19 you know turn of the century 1920s 1930s like east coast you know, big cities. That's way scarier to me and way more interesting. New York in the 30s was pretty messed up. <laughs> yeah. I think you you do end up with a lot of those sorts of settings in um, cosmic horror. Oh, yeah. Mm. Like, The Shadow Over Innsmouth is about a creepy insular town in New England. 
Also, and, we've we've mentioned Cosmic King. Horror. <laughs> oh yeah, Stephen King. Everything he sets is in Maine. Hey, Maine. <laughs> Maine, more like auxiliary. <sighs> Sorry, go <You're> on. Fired <laughs> out of a cannon. <laughs> Anyways, we we've called Cosmic Horror the the successor genre here, but. There is also Southern Gothic. Yeah, there is. Which is also a successor genre to it. That is, whereas your, your traditional Gothic setting is, you know, somewhere in Eastern Europe amidst the ruins of Gothic architecture and those cool, creepy Catholic dudes. Bishops? <laughs> Do you mean priests? Cool, to be fair, dudes. to be fair, most Catholic dudes are creepy. Catholicism, from the point of view of not Catholics, in general, has an aesthetic. Look, I'm not gonna be. Ian's on his locked tomb kick right now. Look, Catholicism. Spooky. <laughs> As opposed to Protestantism, which is completely, totally noble. <laughs> that is a subject that could be its own podcast entirely, considering the, the breadth of, of heresies. <laughs> Anyways, but where I was going was, instead of having your gothic themes in that classic setting... You just transpose them to the American South post-Civil War. That would do it. You know, I don't creepy. think I've actually read any Southern Gothic horror. Yeah, me neither. I'm not all that familiar with specific works in the genre. Me neither, but it definitely exists. With the possible exception of whether you might consider um, the Twisted Ones Southern Gothic. It's kind of that that's that's a novel that could be Southern Gothic or could be cosmic horror. It's set in a small town in North Carolina. Spooky. And you know, deals with supernatural goings on in the woods and the as a or, or, as the heroine is trying to uh clean up her recently deceased grandmother, hoarder grandmother's house. Where was I going? I think that's about where I was going. Yeah. Southern Gothic. Well, I was just saying, in terms of modern stuff, is Gothic that popular in, like, a yes. sense? Because, I, I, I mean, everything is popular relative. So <laughs> when I say popular, I mean, like, currently... Horror is what? Because in my mind, horror currently is sort of, oh, the 80s were cool, weren't they? <laughs> that seems like what we're going for, the Stranger Things kind of uh, horror. I would, I would say that with modern sensibilities, a lot of the things that are considered horrifying in gothic fiction kind of aren't anymore. They're either things that are kind of normal or are kind of turned humorous 
I literally woke up thinking about the Adams family today. <laughs> Honestly, that seems like something you would wake up doing every day, Ian. <laughs> Not every day. Most days. Many days. If you don't think about the Adams family at least once a week, what are you doing? But yeah, uh, it is said like modern horror is a lot more about crazier stuff somehow than what Gothic presents. I feel like a lot of the horror I run into that I think is popular is nostalgic horror. Like Stranger Things or the analog horror craze. I think that's what's popular now. There's uh, Jordan Peele's horror, you know. Oh, yeah. uh, Is obviously, you know, that new age horror, which is a lot more inventive. (laughs) It's not slashers. We're not in the slasher age anymore. Though they keep on trying to come back, much much like the monsters in those movies. <laughs> hey, hey, Scream Five was really good. Hmm. Will Scream Six be any good? It's already out. Will Scream Ten be any good? <laughs> you? I don't know. <laughs> it's the problem with those horror movies. There may too many of them. Most of them are poop. <laughs> There's like. 18 Friday the 13th. Wait, okay. And how many of them are good? Like, uh, two. <laughs> well, let's see. One, one of them's pretty bad. Two's alright. We're not on Friday the 13th. Did, uh, do you guys remember when I talked about Halloween 2? <laughs> Which uh, Halloween 2? So, uh, Halloween 1 is obviously, uh, the. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that's Mike Myers, right? Michael Myers. Mike Myers is the comedian. Yeah, but he's also more scary. Um, (laughs) Groovy, baby. (laughs) But, yeah. But Halloween 2 isn't about him. It's a completely different story. What? No, it is. That's Halloween 3. Halloween 3 is not about Michael. Yeah, but that's like the weird thing. It's about... Just like this random other story. Like, why? <laughs> oh, 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 I I know why. I know why. I'm a big fan of Halloween. I know why. So, originally, Halloween was going to be an anthology series. But when Halloween 1 made Gangbusters, they had to bring Michael back for part 2 and then do their plans for an anthology in part 3. The problem is, Michael Myers became so popular that when... Halloween 3 came out and wasn't about him, people did not care for it. They did not care about the story, and they didn't like it. So they had to bring him back. And that's why Halloween 3 has nothing to do with him. But Halloween 3 is also not a great movie. (laughs) Like, even on its own. Yeah, but it has evil Stonehenge and a mask that turns people into bugs. That's sick. You... you, you... (laughs) Yeah, but saying anything like that can be construed as sick. Yes. Anyway, gothic horror and TRP. Actually, uh, I, had a, I had a <laughs> point. Like, throughout this, we've been talking about how normalized a lot of gothic horror is nowadays. Like, werewolves being treated as victims, or me continuing to try and make hot vampires a topic. Yeah. 
And I think it does raise a very interesting point on how monster fiction is a lot about marginalizing otherwise normal traits or symptoms of conditions. Like, I feel like a lot of monster fiction is about treating the other as always evil in a way. Yeah, like the movie monster genre doesn't get as much anymore. Like, typically, if we get a movie monster these days, it's like weird alien or creature we cannot explain that just kills a lot. Okay, but the the thing was a banger, though. The thing was really good. Sure, but when um, when we refer to like sort of the the classic movie monsters, the thing is sort of like more is second era, third era stuff. The thing you know, is just, more body horror. Yeah. Like. Yeah, but the thing is an inexplicable monster that just kills a lot. Yeah, yeah but that's that. Yeah, it's good though. It's like. You know, looking at modern horror, modern horror is like either something like robotic, paranormal. We're looking at more. It's like we don't get. No one wants to see a bad guy vampire anymore. Like, because we are also used to media portraying most vampires at this point as either heroes, anti heroes, or just people. And that's a good thing. Yeah, if you look at, say, Marceline, Mo- <laughs> Morbius, even. Like, yeah. they, 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 not the movie, but oh, yeah. these are not full-on bad guys anymore. Like, that, that is completely... It, it's a foreign concept these days to go, the main villain is going to be this. Even, like, if you think of, like... Zombies, in a way, like the classic zombie versus what the modern zombie. The modern zombie is more the infection and everything, and society collapsing than ooh, zombies are scary. I have been playing an obsessive amount of Left 4 Dead too, so I can <laughs> confirm. Modern fiction in general is a lot better about portraying inhumans as still people in their own right. And I think that's an improvement over the genre's earlier stylings. You know, vampires are just people. They're people who bite and have weird powers, but they're people. If I crunchy, saw... Munchy, munchy, crunchy, crunchy. Mm. <laughs> I have never liked the trope of always chaotic evil. I've never liked it. I think it's weird to point at a species and go, they're always bad. Like, that's not how morality works. That's not how any of this works. Well, that's just the thing in general with every sort of... We've stopped generalizing based on race. Yeah. (laughs) Like, when we talked about fantasy, uh, it was like, yeah, not all orcs are going to be evil. Some orcs like winning. Even a majority of will not be. And it's sort of like we've broken down that veneer of what people thought were oh yeah, we can generalize a whole group of people as a single entity. Yeah. Like, think... that. that's sort of gone now. Like, I... 
Mm-hmm. Dylan, have you seen your news cycles in the last decade? Well, yeah, but the point is, I can be critical of those news cycles and be and be like, no, it's saying you know all immigrants are bad, are criminals, are this and that. It's like, well, no, like, what makes this person any more dangerous? You know, like I can understand culture clashes, cr- culture issues. You know. Assimilating into a different society issues on both fronts, but just the fact that they are that does not make them bad. Exactly. Yeah, like, but we have this all generalization, you know, sort of thing back in the day where it's like, oh, he's a vampire, he's a bad guy. It's like, and they eventually got to the point where it was like. It's more, oh, he's the vampire? He's the main love interest. (laughs) God, I wish that was me. But, (laughs) yes, the point I'm trying to make is that when, in our modern society, where at least, if you're a good person, you try to treat everyone equally, it's become easier to break down the boundaries in fiction and real life. It was... Generalization in fiction was endemic of the xenophobia of society. And while we obviously still have racists, homophobes, and transphobes nowadays, society has gotten better about it. Like, by and large. And because of that, our modern fiction accommodates that. Gone are the days of every... Vampire, orc, big-ass robot being a bad guy, and in are the days where a character is just that, a person that is created for a story. We are not our functions in fiction anymore. Diversity win? Hell yeah. I'd high-five you if I could. Unfortunately, I haven't been to your state in over a year. Good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My yeah. state is a nightmare. Even ignoring the legislators, we also just have, like, nothing. <laughs> Unless you like Elvis. Or fried chicken. That's it. Uh, I do like fried chicken. I don't like Elvis. You don't like Elvis? Not really, no. <laughs> uh, anyway... <laughs> This is kind of where we'd normally be getting around to, like, advice and stuff. And on that note, I would like to point out that TV Tropes actually has a page called So You Want to Write a Gothic Story. And I would like to actually mention some of these, um, what they're calling necessary tropes. Go for it. Because I think this might be some, some interesting discussion here. Particularly on this first one. Transgression. Oh, I thought this was going to be something funny at the first, like, syllable there. Yeah, I was thinking transgenderism or transformers. Well, have some fun chewing on this one. Okay. Like much of romanticism, gothic fiction is firmly rooted in the presupposition of a natural order of things, both in the universe and in the society, and concerns rebellion against said order and or the authority imposing it. 
As Romanticism's more cynical, darkier, and edgier side, however, the Gothic refuses to celebrate this rebellion and instead frames it as a transgression, exploring its consequences for both the perpetrator and innocent victims. Sounds about right so far. Now, that feels kind of weird. I give, Given the politics of this group, yeah, that feels just wrong. Yeah. Also, considering that a lot of gothic writers tended to be progressive for at least for their time it is kind of a weird move to make yeah so uh my advice for this section don't do that yeah <laughs> no um actually well kind of what it mentions in the next sentence on the website is it gives the example of victor frankenstein um and his consequences for attempting and failing to play god i mean really if he hadn't been such a little bitch and wimped out as soon as he saw the monster, would have been a totally different outcome. Yeah, if he had just, he didn't commit to the bit. If he had <laughs> just, exactly, if he had just treated his damn kid with respect, none of this would have happened. So what we're saying is, if Frankenstein went to improv classes, everything would have been okay. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's what you all have to learn: is improv improves everything. Look, they're such similar words. Improv, improve. I think the real tragedy of the story is that he didn't pay child support. I, I do wonder if you can derive more, more horror and, and tragedy in a character trying and failing to defy authority. Yeah. I think that would definitely be a much better story than just going, yeah. Rebellion bad. No, it's not. Being stupid about it and not going all the way through with it is bad. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Victor yeah. Frankenstein. I've got beef, okay? Go off, queen. I've got beef with a character from a novel that was published like 200 years ago. If you're gonna have... 180, I think, because it was 1842. If you're gonna have a rivalry with any... One in history, or fiction, it's Victor Frankenstein. Followed closely by uh, Ronald 1818, Reagan. it has passed the 200 mark. Okay, I can absolutely have beef with this motherfucker. <laughs> I know when he came out. There are three people in fiction I have beef with. Victor Frankenstein, Emperor Palpatine, and that... Mug, son of a bitch, FBI agent from Detroit become human. I have beef with a lot more than just two people in fantasy, I'm gonna be real. We've got Victor Frankenstein, we've got Arthur Watts, we have J.K. Rowling. That, that's a you have beef with Arthur Watts? He's a bitch of a scientist. <laughs> but he was right, though. <laughs> that entire call-out post against well. Cinder that he sent on Twitter.com? That he, yeah, that, but the rest of him, he's a bitch. He is a bit of a little bitch. He's a bitch-ass scientist. Men needs to learn to grow up and write more grant requests. Yeah, sure, you're gonna lose that to some stupid people. Arthur Watch is a bitch-ass... Welcome to grant writing. I mean, to be fair, the person he lost against did make a functioning 
you know, person with an aura. Nice. That's kind of crazy. Well, okay, yeah, but like, if you lose out on a grant to someone, you're kind of obliged to think they're a dumbass for a little bit. <laughs> a little. Look, scientists, we have ego, okay? Pro tip for writing a mad scientist ca character, give them a little bit of ego, because we've all got at least a little bit of it, you know. You kind of have to, to go, hey, here's my project that I want to do, and I want you to pay for it. Look, I But there's a little necessary amount of ego to do that. Look, I have beef against more than three characters, but I've realized halfway through saying that, that I did not actually think of any examples. I think on the fly, alright? I don't think. Good. Thinking is hard. We got more tropes down here to bitch about. We do. <laughs> we kind of got distracted. We, we got distracted with the first necessary trope, and then, um... Yeah. Ooh, ooh, I want to go next. Go ahead. The next trope is thicker than water, and I want to bitch, because... Okay, one, the phrase, as near as I can tell, is... The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. That's the original phrase. Possibly. Possibly, maybe. That's what I had always heard was the original phrase. It's very possible everything I had ever heard was wrong. Ring around the rosy. Keep an open mind, folks. That's how you don't get mad when you're wrong. Ring around the rosy is not about the bubonic plague. Really? It, yeah. Apparently the uh, I had always heard that it was about the plague, but what was it about? Uh, let me look on Snopes real quick. Claim. The nursery rhyme Ring Around the Rosy is a coded reference to the Black Plague. Rating false. Ring Around the Rosy is simply a nursery rhyme of indefinite origin and no specific meaning, and someone long after the fact concocted an inventive explanation for its creation. So, uh, no. Hmm. But yeah, the blood figure and water thing, it's funny how people get that misconstrued. It's like, okay, so if blood is thicker than water, what, what, so family bonds are thicker than water? What is water in this situation? But it makes more sense when you think about it from the angle of, oh, your blood brother, you know, the people you choose whom blood bonds with is more important to you than the person who, you know, held you in a womb or you shared a womb with. Like, yeah, that makes a lot more sense when you think about it in that angle. Because water has, like, no relation to, like, friendships. Or, like, people outside your family. Water is water. So I did a little quick research here on, on the history of the proverb. The earliest written attestation of any form of the proverb, blood is thicker than water, traces back to the 12th century in Germany. And the only references to the phrase, the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb, are by modern authors who cite no sources. Ah, so the research has shown up. I was wrong. I do have beef with the phrase blood is thicker than water, though, because, you know, I love my family. For some reason, that's rare among my friend circles, but I do love my family. I don't. I owe them a lot. If they mistreated me, I wouldn't owe them shit. Yeah, it. Um... I mean, yeah, that's the point of the phrase. It's it's inversed. Yeah, it's. Um, yeah, that's the beef, is it? it kind of places too much emphasis, and this is kind of something that we as a society do, is we place too much emphasis on 
you know, people being important to you because you share DNA with them. Fun fact, I share a statistically insignificant difference of DNA with other people, too. Like, the difference there is really small. Isn't it what? What's the percentage of DNA you share with a banana? I'm going to have to look this up. It's yeah, a large it, amount. It's like, who would I rather have in my house? Like, my my 12th cousin or, like, someone you've known since five and saw every day? Like, you... of course it would be the person you spend a lot of time with, not someone who's probably a stranger to you, but is tangentially related to you. Everyone nowadays shares a little bit of DNA with Constantinople, a little bit of DNA with Genghis Khan, which is not how you pronounce that name, and a little bit of DNA with a banana. I don't. It's, uh, oh, it's sixty percent with a banana. That's not little. It's it's somewhere between forty and sixty percent. But DNA is a dumb metric to use. It is. Yeah. That's my point. Yeah, we are agreeing it's... with your point. <laughs> Family is worthless. Look, Get rid. Look. Tell them. <laughs> oh, okay. Not that far. You are not owed respect just because you're related to someone. Truly, family is the most gothic of all horrors. <laughs> Again, Frankenstein. Deadbeat dad. We've been over this. Well, to be fair, in that situation, he wasn't really his dad. He was more his god, his creator. No, I think Dr. Frankenstein was, in this case, the mother. So God is a woman, based. Yes. <laughs> based. Based. <laughs> That's it. This could definitely be a trope about found family. That would certainly apply in uh, gothic fiction. There's, I think, arguably a little bit of that in Dracula, even. The character of Van Helsing certainly seems to play a bit of a father figure to um, Jack Seward, at least. I actually haven't read um, Dracula, which is surprising, because I, I have an ebook copy of it on my phone, I'm pretty certain. It's, you know, kind of one of those things of, like, you've kind of always had... I think I got it from my... Dad reading a bunch of ebooks at one point. Yeah, I've got I've got Dracula, Little Woman, and Pride and Prejudice on there. Ah, this is this, we were talking about this before we started recording, and I was going to bring it up on the show again. And here we are, uh, about an hour in, and it's we only just now coming up. back up. No. <sighs> but, but, uh, Go but, subscribe uh, to Dracula but. Daily. <laughs> mm. Go subscribe to Dracula Daily, even if you haven't read Dracula before. It's it's fun. Alrighty. If you if you want a little <laughs> little bite of 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 gothic horror every day, all right, almost every day. Right. The next trope. I'll take dibs on it. Romance. I call dibs. Romantic love is an important part of the gothic, but the romantic paradigm. And then there's a note: boy meets girl, girl's father intervenes, boy is exiled but returns after a transformative experience and marries girl, is almost always gleefully subverted. And then it gives a few examples. I'll skip to a major exception is the gothic romance subgenre, which lets love prevail in the end, but it is still subversive in showing the heroine as a subject rather than an object in the romantic relationship. 
You say subversive. I say poggers. Women are people, too. I mean, yeah. Yeah, there's not much to... Also, if you write a story that isn't Boy Meets Girl, I am more likely to read it, statistically speaking. I mean, I, I will read MLW stuff, but... Especially queer MLW stuff. Um, it is a lot easier to uh, attract my attention by uh, shaking two women casing it, uh, <laughs> two women kissing in front of my face like a bag of cat treats. <laughs> Me when the owl house. Okay, but there's <laughs> precisely there's nothing really to bitch about with this trope specifically. It's more like bitching about heteronormative fiction in general. Like I think, which is a classic on the podcast, indeed. Like no, in terms of this trope for gothic horror, this is actually kind of fits. Go for it, subvert that shit. Go for it, do it. Like I mean, be queer about it, at least a little. But like, yeah, I, I don't got anything to say about it. If y'all don't, does anybody want? Yeah, I don't. I don't think we have much to say here. Uh, so does anybody want to call dibs on the next one? How many of these are there? Uh, uh, there four. are four more. Okay. Dark and Troubled Past, Bionic Hero, Secret Oaths, and Forbidden Knowledge, which dibs, uh, and Supernatural. Dibs. Aww. I mean, do, <laughs> does, instead of going through them, does anyone have anything to say on any of those? <laughs> We've had something to say about all of them. Yeah, do you have... Well, yeah. tell me what you have to say about the rest. I think that's what we're waiting on you to do, because you haven't had a turn yet. I don't want to have a turn. It's I got things turn. I need to do. It's your turn, Dylan. That's true. I haven't even got the page open. <laughs> open the page! <laughs> Mom says it's your turn on the Xbox, Dylan. I don't want to turn. I want to read. Okay, so Dark and Troubled Past by Ron Akiro. We can probably delve more into those tropes in specific in our... Uh, uh, d- 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 Tragic Heroes episode next month, but like, yeah, you know, yeah. So Byronic Hero is named after Lord Byron, who was a interesting character uh, of the Romantic period. Says here, mad, bad, and dangerous to know. Yeah, exactly. He was uh that basically, <laughs> but. I think the most interesting thing here is what you just wanted to, which you just called dibs on Maya, which is the secret oaths and forbidden knowledge. Yeah. Um, forbidden knowledge in particular is kind of fun. Things that are, you know, either not meant for people to know because it's some, uh, I take that as a challenge. I'm aware you take it as a challenge, Ian. (laughs) <laughs> that was a good evil laugh thank you it's it's often stuff like uh ways to live longer or ways to do things about life and death the earliest thing i remember about like a story where there's this forbidden knowledge about life and death being itself a transgression of some kind was actually a greek myth Asclepius, I believe it was, brought someone back from the dead. And the Greek gods were none too happy. Because, uh, 
that would go against the natural order of things. Okay. I think we've definitely hit our word count for this yes, week. Just a little. And so this is the part where Maya asks me if we have anything in the mailbag, and I reply that we do not. This seems like, though, perhaps you're setting it up as if we do. Uh, no, we do not, <laughs> unfortunately. Aww. So if anybody wants to change that, uh, our email address is fanfictapes at gmail.com. That is also down there in the description. You can uh, also leave us a comment on our YouTube page or uh, on Apple Podcasts. You can also, for now, uh, get a hold of us on Twitter. Yes, uh, for as long as that um, platform still exists and functions on the interwebs, uh, we are at Fanfic Tapes with a capital F and a capital T in the places you would typically expect them. I run that account, and when I remember, I post about the episodes we release. Barry, Yo. do you have anything that you would like to promote this week? Nothing springs to mind. My YouTube is still Greatness942, and you can search up that name to find my Twitter, my archive of our own, my Bay 12th. Do you want to play a game with me? Ooh, you play Dwarf Fortress? I guess. Yeah. Ooh, I haven't played that in a while. I play a lot of Dwarf Fortress, actually. Real good. Losing is fun. Losing is fun. Especially when it's your fault. Uh-huh. Anyways. Alright, well, if you would like to feed me eternally, send us an email. If not, we'll see you next time. Well, I am and uh, have been Maya. I am and always will be Dylan. I am and will be for the foreseeable future, Barry. And I am Ian. Until next time, bye. <laughs>